this day that you have given to us. Thank you for this lesson that you have given to us this morning. I just pray, Lord, that you will speak to us as we need to be spoken to about falling back into sin because I know it's a problem that every single one of us have. And this morning, unfortunately, we have to look at Abraham again falling back into sin. But we do thank you that you are a God who keeps and secures those who truly belong to you, even through their sins. We thank you that you are Almighty God. We thank you that there is nothing which is too hard for you. May we never forget, Father, that you are our unlimited power, that you have unlimited power, and to intervene in the lives of your people, even when they do mess up, as we often do. Every single day we do. I pray, Father, that you would help us to um, never cave in, especially in these perilous times, to never cave in to despair or anxiety or distrust when those trials confront us. You are our strength. You are our shield. You are our refuge. You are omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God. And may we cling to that and know that you truly are sovereign and that you are in control of all things and that you do work all things together ultimately for your good, for our good and for your glory. Now, I ask that you would go before us, help me to speak quickly and clearly, and please, Father, may I decrease and Christ increase, for we pray in his name. Amen. One of the many ways that we know that the Bible is indeed the word of God and not written by men is that it tells us the truth about men and women even those who were the very best of God's own people. It does not hide facts, as we saw last year, such as Noah's drunkenness, nor does it hide facts like Moses' temper or David's adultery or Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And neither has it hidden from us the sins of the great patriarch of the faith, Abraham, the only man in the Old Testament to be called the friend of God. We've already learned about his mistake back in chapter 12 of going down into where? Egypt. And that was because of a distrust of God. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, so he went down into Egypt. And we learned there about his subsequent lie about his relationship with Sarah. And as a result of that first major failure in Abraham's life down in Egypt, he obtained a certain handmaid for Sarah named Hagar, which led to his second major, a second and most serious major failure or sin, the sin in which he produced with Hagar the son of flesh, Ishmael, rather than the son of promise. Now, in our lesson this morning on Genesis chapter 20, which I've entitled, Oh No, Not Again. Have you ever said that about yourself? (laughs) Oh No, Not Again. We find the third major failure of Abraham. Sadly, it was a repeat of his first sin. How many of you have ever repeated a sin? (laughs) Quite a few times. Uh, It's a repeat of his first sin because he purposely once again hid the truth about his relationship with Sarah, the fact that she was indeed his wife. Now, it seems a shame. I almost hated to come to this chapter because we have really been building Abraham up. I mean, we've seen him exalted so highly, uh, especially in the last several chapters, that it's just a shame to have to see him fall back into sin. And yet, this is... This is truth. (laughs) This is reality. Abraham was not the son of God. He was just like you and me, a man, a sinner, saved by grace. And it shows us that no one is exempt from repeating his or her mistakes. If even a great uh, saint such as Abraham had character weaknesses, then surely each and every one of us need to be aware and watchful in the areas of our own weaknesses. We each have certain areas where we are weak and um, 
they can tempt us to fall prey to the same sins over and over and over again. Well, as we come to the 18 verses of this chapter, we're going to do so in two main divisions. You see that in your notes in front of you. First of all, we're going to look at verses 1 to 8, the sin repeated, and then secondly, verses 9 to 18, we're going to cover our discussion on the sinners restored. Now, in this first section... Genesis 20, verses 1 to 8, we're going to look at three subdivisions. They're also on your outline. First of all, we'll look at Abraham's iniquity, then God's intervention, and thirdly, Abimelech's integrity. And you'll learn who Abimelech is as we get into it. So let's begin by looking at Abraham's iniquity, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 20. It says, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. See why I call this, oh no, not again. For some reason, Abraham decided to leave Hebron, where he had been living for some 20 to 25 years. Now the name Hebron... Uh, you might say, well, I thought he lived in the plains near Mamre, and he did, but that was right close to Hebron. Hebron in Hebrew means fellowship. Hebron, remember, has been the place all those years where Abraham had enjoyed great fellowship, even at times face-to-face fellowship with the Lord himself. So it's difficult really to understand why he would depart from Hebron, the place of fellowship, and head south about 50 miles down to Gerar, which was at that time the capital city of the Philistines. And it was very close to the Egyptian border. So even though Abraham did not make the same mistake of going down into Egypt as he had done many years earlier, and even though he was still within the boundaries of the land that God had promised to him, yet he went to live very close to the edge, was right on the edge of Egypt. And you know it's always dangerous for a believer to see just how close to the edge he can get, if you know what I'm saying. You know, it's right there to the edge of sinning or being just like the world. That's always dangerous. Who did we see that exemplified by? Lot, exactly. And so it was going to be, I mean, right away we're warned that this is going to be a dangerous position. I think that's probably Joe and Lois trying to get in, if somebody could help them. Gerar may have been within the borders of Canaan, but it was, as I said, near the Egyptian border. And it was populated by the early ancestors of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines did not worship the one and true living God. Although they did retain, from their ancestors, they did retain a uh, knowledge of him, of his existence. Now, Gerar, according to Abraham's own assessment of that city, and you'll see that in verse 11, was not a place where God was feared. So why, we might ask, did he move there? Well, we don't really know for sure. Now, it may be that with the loss of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of all the fertile plains of the Siddim Valley and the loss of some million citizens, that Abraham just needed to go elsewhere to get away from all of the sad memories because, as we said, he probably knew many of those people. And his heart as you can imagine, must have been really grieved heavily to know that every single one of them was gone, except for those who lived in uh, Zoar. And furthermore, as far as we know, Abraham did not even really know that Lot had been spared. For all he knew, unless, unless somebody from Zoar came and told him that Lot was okay, Abraham did not know that Lot had been spared. And so um, he would have been grieved, even if he did know that Lot was okay, he would have been grieved by, grieved by the fact that his nephew did not come back to him. So, what, so he might have left because he just needed to get away from the, the memories 
and the sadness of it all. But whatever his motives were, and they probably did have something to do with that recent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he um, picked up his tents, and with Sarah and the rest of his family and servants, he journeyed south into Gerar, which was between Kadesh and Shur in the southern part of Israel. Now, the move did not really demonstrate a lot of wisdom on Abraham's part. We don't read about him being told by God to move there, do we? Neither do we read about him praying first before he made that move. Furthermore, what had the Lord just told Abraham? Just recently, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord had come face to face along with two angels, and he had told Abraham that Sarah was to have finally, after all those years of waiting, she was to have the promised son within a year. So why move to a strange land and jeopardize her at such a critical time in their lives? I mean, it was a time when when, uh, it would have seemed most wise to stay put, a time to take extra special care of Sarah, especially since she was 89 years old and pregnant, or, you know, she's either early pregnancy or going to be pregnant soon during chapter 20. I'm not sure which, and we'll talk about that. But it would seem like a time to really take care of her rather than expose her to travel. I mean, travel wasn't real easy in those days. And expose her to a brand new environment and to the danger of being taken from him as it happened down in Egypt. So uh, perhaps, though, Abraham was making decisions unwisely while he was still in a state of grief and despair. And you know, after you've had um, grief, you know, time of loss or trauma in your life, they always, wise counsel will always say, it is not the time for you to make any major decisions. So he should not have made this decision. It shows a lack of wisdom. Now in verse 2, we find that Abraham and Sarah uh, repeated the same lie that had gotten them into great trouble when they were down in Egypt. Back in Genesis 12, verse 11, we had learned that Abraham had asked Sarah to protect him, kind of selfish back then, remember, protect him by saying that she was his sister. What was he afraid of? He was afraid that the Egyptians would see how beautiful she was, and she was very striking, and that they would kill him in order to take her for themselves. However, you see, they would spare his life if they merely thought that she was his sister, and then they would have to bargain with him for, to, uh, for her. But because of that first lie, Abraham and Sarah had almost been permanently separated from one another, and Sarah had almost been defiled in Pharaoh's bed. Only God's intervention had prevented a victory for Satan, who would have, in doing that, he would have successfully destroyed the messianic line of the promised seed of the woman before Christ, you know, who is the ultimate seed of the woman with a capital S, was even born. So, and then we saw it back in that chapter that Abraham was sharply rebuked by who? By Pharaoh by the Pharaoh himself, and he was indeed very fortunate to get away with his life and with his wife, thanks only to God's intervention and God's grace and God's forgiveness. So why now, 20 to 25 years later, was Abraham again afraid, as he does admit in verse 11, to um, say that Sarah was his wife? Why did he think that it was expedient to again lie about his true relationship with her? Could she, at 89 years of age, still be so beautiful to look upon that he was afraid the men of Gerar would kill him to take her for themselves? We do. We definitely do have some women that beautiful at 89 years of old, of age, of old. Well, there are two possible solutions to these questions. 
First of all, we must remember that Abraham and Sarah lived even before Moses. They were much closer in time to the original fall and to the entrance of sin and its effects on man and on this world. So the purity of the human gene pool was much greater than what we have today, where, you know, sin effects on the human body have had 4,000 additional years to wear us down. I mean, this was 4,000 years ago. So an 89-year-old woman back then probably looked more like a 39-year-old woman today. Also, we must remember that the Lord had already told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a baby, a son. In fact, she, as I said before, she may even have been in her early stages of pregnancy. And um, God would have had, in order to make her pregnant, he would have had to have revitalized her post-menopausal body. She would have been rejuvenated in order to conceive Isaac. And this probably then manifested itself in a refreshed outer beauty as well. And remember, Sarah was already, to begin with, a very beautiful woman. Well, that's one possibility that she truly was still a knockout. And they, all the men were, you know, looking at her and lusting after her. There is yet another possibility regarding Abraham's renewed fear that Sarah might present a problem for him if it was known that she was his wife. You know, it was common practice um, down through many of the ages of history for uh, rulers to marry the daughters and the sisters of wealthy or prominent men for the obvious uh, advantages that it would bring to their own reigns, to their own position. And Abraham was a very wealthy chieftain. And a marriage, therefore, to his sister would be a wise uh, commercial, at least from the world's perspective, a wise commercial and political transaction. So even if Sarah appeared old, it would still be benefit a man like Abimelech, the king of Gerar, uh, to add her to his harem. And that is exactly what happened. Whether it was Sarah's beauty or if it was Abraham's wealth or if it was a com combination of both of those factors, which appealed to the king, the fact yet remains that he took her to be another female member of his harem of wives, which was also a common practice among pagan peoples, that they would have a harem. Now, the real cause of Abraham's sin in lying about Sarah was his lack of trust in God. He would not have thought it necessary to, to lie about her if he had really, truly been fully trusting in God, you know, that God could take care of both of them. So we wonder, had he so quickly forgotten about God's promise to um, give a son to Sarah? He couldn't have. We know he just couldn't have forgotten about that promise. So didn't he think that God would also, if he promised Sarah a son, wouldn't he also be willing and able to uh, take care of of the mother of that promised son? And had he so quickly forgotten the Lord's own words over in Genesis 18:14, where it says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Would it be that difficult for the Lord to take care of Sarah? Of course not. And did he not remember the humiliation and the shame of the rebuke that he had suffered by the Egyptian Pharaoh the last time he had used this same lie? You know, that's what makes me just think that Abraham was in, in a state of grief and despair over the loss of all the Sodomites and especially his nephew. Well, because Abraham had stepped out of the place of fellowship there in Hebron without a clear command from God and because he had allowed his fear of man to bring a snare into his life, and also because he had failed to judge and completely deal with his earlier lie when they had been down in Egypt, Abraham once again had allowed himself to become a pawn in the hands of Satan. It would really serve Satan's purposes, you see, 
to put doubt upon the true fatherhood of the son of Sarah if she was already pregnant, which she very well may have been. Or it would have really served his purposes to just remove her completely from Abraham if she wasn't pregnant yet so that the son of promise would never be conceived by Abraham at all. You know, it was always, always Satan's plot and plan during the entire Old Testament era for him to destroy the messianic line of Christ so that Christ would never be born. So Abraham's lie is very serious. It not only um, resulted in peril to his princess. Remember what Sarah's name means? Princess. So he not only put his princess in peril, but he um, put in peril the promises of God's covenant. And furthermore, his lie brought peril to the Philistines, especially to their king and to his house. Remember back in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Abraham was to, God told him he was to be a blessing to the nations of the world, a blessing to the families of the earth. And now we see, however, for the second time that rather than being a blessing, he was making himself a curse on other nations and other peoples. And for the second time, he destroyed the testimony that he could have had before the Lord before a very powerful king of another nation. So once again, as he had done years previously, he found himself in a hopeless situation. If he went to the king of Gerar, whose title, by the way, is Abimelech. Abimelech, just like Pharaoh, is a title. It's not a name. So if he went to Abimelech and confessed his lie in order to get Sarah back, what do you think would have happened? Abimelech probably would have just killed him for having lied, and he probably would have still kept Sarah. The only thing he could have done at that point in time was just have a full-scale war. I mean, he had, a, he had 300 servants, and he had gone to war before, but wouldn't that be selfish, to have many innocent people dying just because of his lie? So really, there was nothing he could humanly do to get Sarah back. Apart from direct intervention from God himself, there was really no solution for his dilemma. But God... Don't you love those two words? But God. But God had made a promise. And with God, what? A promise is a promise. Regardless of what men might do to mess that promise up, and regardless of what Satan might purposely attempt to do to prevent God from keeping his promises. He had promised God, I mean, he had promised Abraham a son. And that son would be born through Sarah. That son would carry on the line of the coming Savior. And God would not at all ever allow that promise to be thwarted or even to be questioned. So let's look next at God's intervention, verse 3. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. Wouldn't you love to have a dream like that? Oh. <laughs> thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. All right, apparently before Abimelech had an opportunity to have a physical relationship with Sarah, whom he had by now brought into his harem, God afflicted him with an infirmity of some kind, which was of such a nature that it prevented him, I mean, he was apparently pretty sick, it prevented him from having any sexual relations. It was also, whatever this illness was, it was also of such a nature that it would have resulted in Abraham's death. And, I mean, Abimelech's death, excuse me. And this is what God revealed to the king in a dream when he said to Abimelech, Thou art but a dead man. What Abimelech had done in taking Sarah had threatened God's plan for the salvation of mankind through his son. So this is serious business. And even though Abimelech 
was innocent as far as his knowledge of the situation exactly you know everything that was um, involved in it yet God had to intervene in order to protect Sarah and to protect mostly unborn Isaac and the lineage of Christ so to further let Abimelech know just how serious this situation was God closed up the wombs of his wife this is in verse 17 if you look ahead I guess that means his first wife and then all the other women in his harem and his servants as well his servants wives their wombs were closed up nobody was going to conceive any children as long as Sarah was in Abimelech's household now it is possible that this divine plague was uh, even going to strike everyone in Abimelech's nation all the Philistines or at least that's what Abimelech himself feared might occur according to verse 4 which we'll get to next now because Abimelech did not know why he was having this particular physical problem God revealed it to him in this dream God told him that he had taken another man's wife he also as mentioned got across to Abimelech how serious this situation was when he told him that this was life and death information that he was receiving in this dream if he responded correctly it would gain him his life if he did not respond correctly it would mean his death so we see again how one man's sin reaches out of course I'm talking about Abraham's sin of lying in the first place how that one sin reaches out and it affects many many other people not only did Abraham's sin affect himself it also affected Sarah and it would have even meant Abimelech's death because God would have stricken him dead before he would ever have allowed the king to touch Sarah furthermore it was affecting all the other women connected with Abimelech and it would have probably even affected all of the Philistines of Gerar worst of all however is the fact that Abraham's sin forced God to um, intervene to intervene miraculously and that was tempting God and tempting God is a sin Deuteronomy 616 and that's isn't that what the Lord Jesus himself told Satan when Satan in the wilderness tried to get him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple so that angels would catch him that was tempting God that would have been tempting God and that is a sin so of the two men Abraham and Abimelech the one who committed the worst sin was Abraham Abimelech was unsaved now my personal feeling is that by the end of the chapter the man was saved that he did believe in God and he was a doer of the words of God and not just a hearer only I believe the man got saved but at the beginning when he took Sarah he was an unsaved man and therefore of course it was perfectly natural for him to act according to the lusts of the eyes and the lust of the flesh by adding wives to his harem according to all the legal laws of his people and even of other people groups living back at that time it was very it was perfectly legal for him to take any single woman he desired or whom he felt it would be beneficial to make alliances with you know with other peoples or nations and to add help add to his own state treasuries all that was legal but Abraham on the other hand knew the Creator Redeemer God and he had even spoken to him face to face he was under a whole different set of morals and, and ethics just as you are and I are you know we're under a whole different what might be legal for the world to do does not mean it's right for us to do therefore he was held far more accountable than Abimelech he was held more accountable for lying than what Abimelech was held accountable for doing in having taken Sarah into his harem all right in the next scene now we're going to look at Abimelech's integrity and this is uh, in verses 4 to 8 it says but Abimelech had not come near her make sure the Holy Spirit wants us to make sure we know that 
Abimelech had not come near her, meaning Sarah. And he, Abimelech, said, this is still now in the dream. Abimelech's talking to the Lord in his dream. He said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he, he's speaking there of Abraham, said he not unto me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die." Thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears. And the men were sore afraid. Well, the first thing we notice is that several times in this passage, God the Holy Spirit makes sure to tell us that Abimelech had not had any kind of physical relationship with Sarah. And it's imperative that we have this assurance we need this assurance that Isaac was not the seed of Abimelech and Sarah, but that Isaac was the seed of Abraham and Sarah. And that's very important for us to know. Abimelech's first response to the Lord in this dream really shows us that um, he was a man of integrity. It, it gives us a positive reflection on the man himself. Rather than being selfishly concerned about himself, his own life, and his own potential death, we see that he demonstrates first concern for his people. This shows that he was a good leader because the first thing he did was plead with God on the behalf of his subjects. He was telling God that, that his people were innocent concerning the wrong which had been done. And he appealed to God's justice. Now remember the Philistines did, these are the early, early ancestors of the Philistines that were the bitter, bitter enemies of Israel later on. These are the early ancestors. And they still did retain a knowledge of God. And so he appeals to God's justice. He says God would surely not bring down judgment upon an innocent nation. And apparently Abimelech was very wise because his fear that God might slay the nation over which he ruled tells us that he understood that the deeds of a leader, the, the, a nation's leader, often affect God's dealings with that nation as a whole. So everybody says, praise the Lord for the president we have currently, right? Please pray for that man every single day. And thank God we have a Christian in our office at this time, in the office of president. But Abimelech understood that. He was a wise man. In verse 5, he then proceeded to tell God who was responsible for the fact that Sarah had been taken to become one of his wives. He told God that both Abraham and Sarah, both of them, had claimed only to have a sibling relationship, you know, as brother and sister. Apparently, this tells us that apparently he had looked into the matter before he had taken Sarah uh, to make sure that she was indeed available to be taken. And then Abimelech came honestly before the Lord to tell him that both in the integrity of his heart and in the innocency of his hands, he was right. He was okay. He was proper. He had not done, he, he had no evil inner motivation, and he had not even committed yet any outward act, any outward deed with her. So his heart and his hands were both innocent. And this was true because God commended Abimelech for his upright character, his integrity in verse 6. You know, God looks at the heart when he makes his assessments of man, when he makes his, his judgments on man. Uh, we might 
we might um, make mistakes when we judge someone's motives, but God never, ever misjudges or is never fooled by anyone. He um, sees the hearts, as it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. So God exonerated Abimelech, not because what he did was okay, because it was not. I mean, it was not God's perfect plan. God had given the perfect plan for marriage at the very beginning, one man for one wife, so this was not his perfect plan. And it was very wrong. It was adultery in God's books. But Abimelech was exonerated because God saw that he had no evil in his heart when he, looked, when he took Sarah. He had been deceived, and he had acted in innocence. Now, because Abimelech's heart was not evil in the matter, God protected him from touching Sarah. God said to him, I also withheld thee from sinning. And notice who would the sin have been against? Against me. He said, I withheld thee from sinning against me. I mean, God made sure that his hands were innocent and that Sarah was kept pure. But we learn another important truth here. We learned that, um, and this is a critical truth, David heard, learned this truth, didn't he? When he confessed about his sin with Bathsheba, didn't he say, against thee and thee only, meaning thee primarily, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight? The important thing that we have to realize is that um, our sins, regardless of who else they affect, they are, and they always affect somebody, but they are primarily sins committed against God himself. Well, in verse 7, God went on to tell Abimelech that he was to return Sarah to her husband. And then he told him that Abraham was a prophet. You know, it's really uh, to Abraham's shame that Abimelech had to learn this fact from God himself because he, he didn't know it. <laughs> he had seen no evidence of it by Abraham's behavior. Now, this is the very first time the word prophet appears in the Bible. And it's interesting that it is used in conjunction with prayer. It says, for he is a prophet and he shall pray for thee. So it's used for the first time in conjunction with prayer and not with speaking about the future, not you know, forecasting the future. So prophecy is not merely connected with predictions. That's what we usually think of when we hear the word prophecy. We think about telling something that's going to happen in the future. But it's also connected with uh, prayer, with speaking to God and um, speaking for God, which is what the prophets did. They spoke for God. They were like mediators back then between men and God. Now, in telling Abimelech that Abraham was his man, he was his prophet, God was really warning Abimelech not to do him any harm because Abimelech would have been very justified in his anger against Abraham for having deceived him and putting him in danger in losing of his life. Um, it would have been very natural for a pagan king to just have Abraham dragged in before him and um, murdered, killed. But God warned him in this dream not to dare touch Abraham because he was his man. He was his prophet. And he said, uh, also, you don't want to touch Abraham because he's the one who can pray for you and make this whole situation right. However, Abraham's prayer for Abimelech's healing, he went on to say, would only be effective if Sarah was restored. And also, of course, if Abraham was left unharmed. So you see, God was covering all his bases here, wasn't he? He was making certain that those who belonged to him, regardless of their own foolishness, and aren't you glad for this, <laughs> that they were protected and that his covenant promises would be fulfilled. You see, God's covenant promises to Abraham were unconditional. It's a good thing for that. They were unconditional. They did not depend on Abraham living above reproach, just as is the same with you and I, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It's an unconditional promise that if we believe by faith in his death on our behalf, we are saved. 
Regardless of how many times we mess up, he died for all of those sins, past, present, and future. And there's nothing we can really do to break that covenant promise. Nothing. When God keeps a promise, when God makes a promise, God keeps it. Furthermore, God did not dismiss Abraham from his service. Now that's good news, too. Abraham was still his servant. He was still his prophet on earth. And the man who, he was still the man who was going to intercede in prayer on the behalf of others. Now, Abraham would be chastised, just as you and I, when we sin, just like we have to spank our children, we have to be chastised by God. We have to have a spanking. <laughs> in fact, we're going to see next that God even used Abimelech to do that spanking or that chastening. But Abraham would not be cast out. So Abimelech had to accept the fact that both Sarah and Abraham were under divine protection and that his own life and the lives of his family depended, and even the lives of those in his nation, depended on his response to God's word. Being a man of integrity and wisdom, Abimelech responded very wisely. As we said earlier, he was not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. When we hear God's word and his promises to us, we need to act on them. When we hear that his son died for us and that we can be saved by believing in him, the wisest thing to do in all of eternity is to believe that in faith, accept it, and be born again. So Abimelech woke up early in the morning, it tells us. He remembered his dream conversation with God. Of course, God made sure he didn't forget that dream. And he believed it. And therefore, he began immediately to obey God's orders so as to clear himself of a very dangerous situation. Now, the first thing he did was he called together his servants and he told them about his dream. They, after all, had a right to know uh, why they were also suffering from the symptoms that God had inflicted upon them due to Sarah's situation. So they were entitled to know why they were suffering. And this was also a lesson in virtue, really, because they were learning how seriously God feels about adultery. The reaction of the servants was um, that they were sore afraid. You see that at the end of verse 8. And that was good. That was very good. It shows that contrary to Abraham's assessment, which we see in verse 11, it says in verse 11, I'll just skip and read that to you. It says, uh, Abraham is talking to Abimelech, and he said, uh, the reason he sinned is because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. That was his assessment when he first went to Gerar. Well, it shows us that that assessment was not exactly um, altogether right. Because here, they, the people, the servants, are definitely giving evidence of some degree of godly fear. They were sore afraid. You know, it's good when men tremble at God's words of coming judgment for sin. That's good. And um, that's what we need today more than anything, don't we? Because judgment is right around the corner. I mean, now with this anthrax thing, I, I wish we were studying Revelation again because, you know, all the plagues, it's just like everything is really, really all lining up, all getting ready for what's going to be happening in the tribulation. I woke up this morning and I thought, you know, I might not wake up one of these mornings because I, I might be raptured during the night. I mean, we're getting that close. I really, I'm excited about it. I don't like to really turn on news. I get a little anxious, but I still, at the same time, it's exciting. Well, anyway, um, after then informing his servants of the situation regarding his dream, Abimelech set about to return Sarah to Abraham. However, first, he was going to give them a little piece of his mind, and you can't hardly blame him for that. So we um, are going to turn to the woodshed scene next. <laughs> As we go to part two of our outline, the sinners restored. And under this section, let's see, I don't have my outline up here. We're going to look at, first of all, Abimelech's inquisition, I called it. And then we'll look at Abraham's intercession. So as we look at 
Abimelech's inquisition, first we're going to talk, uh, look at him talking with Abraham, and then after he talks with Abraham, he calls in Sarah. But we'll start with Abraham, verses 9 to 15. It says, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Now, here goes Abraham's excuses in verses 11 to 13. And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me. At every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. Just reading that, who sounds like the better man here if we didn't know any better? <laughs> Now, God may have intervened to preserve his promises to Abraham and Sarah, but he did not intervene to shield them from the shame and embarrassment that they deserved from Abimelech. In fact, God used this king to chastise the couple. Abimelech was um, reminding Abraham that he had done him no harm. So why... Did Abraham bring such evil upon him? Was there some reason behind what Abraham had done in lying about Sarah so that Abimelech thought it was okay to take her into his harem? Did, uh, did Abraham deliberately want Abimelech and his people to be in trouble with God? You know, what was the meaning behind all of this? Well, we see that Abraham's excuses in verses 11 to 13, they're really pitiful. They're, they are pitiful excuses. What he should have done right then and there is confessed his sin openly and have asked forgiveness from both Abimelech and God for what he had done. But instead, he told Abimelech that he had been afraid to tell the truth because the fear of God was not in Gerar. Now, apparently, as we said before, Abraham had underestimated the king of Gerar and its citizens because we find that Abimelech was full of the fear of God at that very moment, even, while he's talking to Abraham. Or he would have just sent Abraham straight into prison or, better yet, have killed him. Or worse yet, I should have said. And all of his servants were likewise full of the fear of God after merely hearing about one dream from God. So, you know, he had not really made a correct assessment of that place. He was maybe looking at the exterior instead of the interior. Those people were probably ripe unto harvest if, if he had gone there as a missionary and told them more about the true God instead of going there and lying. Now, of course, Abraham's lie was really, as we said before, a distrust of God. He feared that they would kill him in order to take Sarah, and that fear was just totally a lack of trust in God's protection. Not only had Abraham's action displayed distrust in God, but it was also dishonest. In verse uh, 12, instead of apologizing for his uh, judgment of the integrity of the king and the people of his kingdom, Abraham then tried to justify his lie. He explained that Sarah really was his sister because they both had the same father, even though they had different mothers. So he's trying to justify it. Perhaps he had even <clears throat> convinced himself that it wasn't a lie to claim Sarah as his sister because she was his half-sister. And yet the fact of the matter is that she was also 
Who? His wife. She was also his wife, and that part of the truth he purposely omitted with the intention of deceit. He was purposely being deceitful. So there was no way of getting around the fact that their half-truth was a lie, and a lie is a lie, and there can be no way to reduce it from being a sin. It was a sin. Now, in verse 13, we learn, and this was interesting, that the origin of their little planned deception about their relationship with one another was not when they were in Egypt. You know, when they went down into Egypt because of the famine in the land and they, they, had, they told that lie about Sarah? That wasn't the origin of that little plan. The origin, that mutual agreement that they had made occurred when God first called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham here confesses that. And he says also that it was his idea which he presented to Sarah. And then we know from their journey down into Egypt that um, it had to do with Sarah's great beauty and Abraham's fear that he would be killed because of her. We learned that in Genesis 12, 12. They had thought themselves wise in this plan. They thought this was a wise thing to do. But really, shouldn't they have found out from their experience in Egypt that it, it was not wise at all. I mean, it had almost cost them everything, and it would have cost them everything if it had not been for God's intervention. Apparently, however, they never really repented of that sin. They never really dealt with it and took care of it as they should have. And so when they found themselves again in another strange uh, I can't say country, but in another strange company of people, what did they easily resort back to? Their original little scheme. That's why the sins in our lives have to be dealt with right away. A lot of times our earlier sins will just crop up later and later in our lives. We need to deal with them. We need to confess them, turn from them, be done with it, realize, you know, understand that they're sin. I don't think they really got a grasp on the fact of how serious their little lie had been. And so it comes up again, as we see. Now, another excuse given by Abraham to Abimelech for his sinful deceit was um, the excuse of God's call on his life. And this is real subtle. You have to really look at this. This is in verse 13. What he's really saying here is... Um, He's making it sound as though God put him in circumstances which required the, uh, the use of deceitful methods to protect himself. And this we don't really see evidenced so much in the English as in the Hebrew because the word that Abraham used for wander there, he said that God um, caused me to wander from my father's house. Now, there are six other Hebrew words that Abraham could have used for the word wander, and they would have been much better than the one he used. The one he used was the worst of all. It denotes the most negative aspects about wandering that, that you can have. What it really was was an effort uh, to cast the blame on God himself. Abraham was really saying that it was God who had caused him to wander and therefore made it necessary for him to protect himself with a lie. You know, God had sent him out from among people he knew and sent him to wander as a fugitive, as, you know, whatever negative things you can think about of wander. And therefore, it was kind of like Adam's. Um, passing the buck. You know, God, it was this woman you gave me. And so he, what Abraham is really doing is trying to pass the blame onto God himself. And then uh, he even tried to justify their lie. The last thing, there are actually five excuses Abraham gave in those three verses. Five excuses. The last one was that he tried to justify their lie as a kindness on Sarah's part because she was just merely trying to protect her husband. You know, men, even godly men, 
are surprisingly adept at giving sin lovely names, you know, so as to justify them. For example, um, adultery can be called a common law marriage. And um, uh, pro-abortion is called pro-choice. I mean, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Give them a choice, pro-choice. Homosexuality is called, what? An alternative lifestyle. Drunkenness is not a sin. It's just a disease. So what is Abraham calling his lie here? His and Sarah's lie? He's calling it a kindness. Same old trick. But Abraham's lie was anything but kind. It cost him. It wasn't kind to him at all. It wasn't kind to anybody. It put a blemish on his character. It affected his testimony before two pagan rulers, you know, Pharaoh and Abimelech. And it made him a curse of judgment because both of those kings and those affiliated with those kings had plagues put on them. Uh, So he was a curse instead of a blessing, a source of blessing. In fact, his lie, apart from God's intervention, would have cost um, him both Sarah and Isaac. He would have lost both of them. And his behavior, as we said before, was a temptation of God. Years later, even, Abraham would reap from the consequences of this lie. Because years later, one of the saddest consequences of his lie was when his own son, Isaac, would commit the very same sin, except worse. And watch out and beware, because that's the way it always is. Our little sins will always be magnified in our children. What we do, they manage to do even worse. Isaac lied to another Abimelech. Can you believe this? Down in Gerar, same place, same station, different ruler, but his name was also Abimelech, and he told Abimelech that Rebekah was his sister when she was his wife. Why was that worse than Abraham's sin? because Rebecca was not even really his half-sister. She was his cousin. So that was one of the worst consequences that Abraham reaped from this experience. Well, if Abraham and Sarah had allowed their bitter experience in Egypt to all but be forgotten, they had a new and fresh reawakening of the danger and the shame of their almost identical experience in Gerar. Apparently, this time, I'm glad to say, they learned their lesson because we never again read of them uh, either distrusting God or scheming to do things their own way. So this is the end of the bad news about Abraham and Sarah. By the fact that God, in the last verses of this chapter, which we'll look at, uh, answered Abraham's prayer of intercession for Abimelech, we do learn that Abraham must have confessed his sin and the Lord forgave him. You know, our Heavenly Father does not reject his children uh, because of their disobedience any more than an earthly parent would reject his or her children because of their disobedience. Yes, they get the spanking, but you still love them all the same, don't you? At any rate, Abimelech not only restored Sarah untouched back to Abraham, but he also, you notice this, kind of shocking in verse 14, he gave Abraham a large gift of sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants. And then what did he do? He even gave him an open invitation to dwell anywhere in the land that it would please him. Abimelech's wisdom again is seen here by his invitation to Abraham to stay in the land under his rule. He understood, you see, the value of having a prophet of God available living among his people. He understood also the wisdom in having a prophet of God as a friend (laughs) and not as an enemy. Then in addition to um, these gifts... And his invitation to live wherever he chose, Abimelech gave Abraham a thousand um, dollars—not a thousand dollars—a thousand pieces of silver. 
And we'll see that in the next verses. And all of those lavish gifts really express the integrity of Abimelech because they demonstrate his repentance for having um, inadvertently endangered the sanctity of Abraham's marriage. Abimelech was really here bending over backwards to make things right. You know, if you think about it, it really seems like it would have been more right for Abraham to have been giving all kinds of lavish gifts to Abimelech for having deceived him and for having allowed him to get into such danger, such a precarious situation where he could have even lost his life. So it seems like Abraham should have been giving the gifts, but Abimelech gave them. Okay, now let's look at the, um, the uh, talk with Sarah in verse 16. It says, And unto Sarah he, Abimelech, said, Behold, I have given thy brother, you notice a little uh, <laughs> sarcasm there, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. Sarah, who had been in on this deceit, was reminded of the fact that uh, her predicament was her own doing. Um, and she gets that when Abimelech refers to her, uh, to Abraham as her brother, because she had confessed to Abimelech when all this was first originating, yes, Abraham is my brother. So he brings that home to her. However, unlike her husband, Sarah gave no excuses. Do you notice this? There's nothing out of her mouth. She doesn't excuse her behavior. Really, of the two, Abraham and Sarah, who do you think is less guilty? Sarah is less. Well, not only is she under, you know, supposed to be under her husband, and it was Abraham's idea to begin with, but also she was less guilty because really she spoke the lie selflessly. She did it in order to protect her husband. And, you know, when she spoke that lie, she knew that she was sacrificially putting herself in danger. I mean, she'd already been in one man's harem. <laughs> And so now she's in another. But so of the two, of Abraham and Sarah, she was less guilty. And also, we have to give to her credit the fact that she spoke no excuse. She, she knew she had done wrong. Now, in his reproof of Sarah, Abimelech admonished her that Abraham should be the covering for her eyes. It says, uh, he is to thee a covering of the eyes. As her husband and as God's prophet, she should have had no fear of the lustful attentions of other men. Abraham would have been a sufficient veil over her eyes, you know, to keep other men from looking at her. If Abraham had been trusting God as he should have been, then God indeed would have made Abraham Sarah's covering of protection. Okay, the last thing we'll close with this is Abraham's protection in verses 17 and 18. It says, So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. As God had promised, Abraham, his prophet, prayed for Abimelech. And what did God do? He healed him. And he healed his wife and all his maidservants and all those uh, in his harem and all the servants' wives, everybody, so that they could again conceive and bear children. In explanation of that, we're told that the Lord had purposely closed up all the wombs of Abimelech's house so that no children at all were conceived during the time that Sarah was part of his harem. Now, you might be interested to know, I was, that this is the very first healing miracle in the Bible. The very first healing miracle in the Bible. And I am glad to be able to conclude this chapter with these last two verses, because up to this point uh, in this chapter, Abraham had not been doing too well. But unlike the end of 
last week's chapter, you know, chapter 19, and Lot's sad, tragic end, you know, living in a cave and having incest with his two daughters. Unlike the end of that chapter and Lot, chapter 20 and Abraham, the friend of God, end well. So this chapter ends on a good note. Uh, obviously, Abraham repented and he got himself right with God at some time uh, between all his excuses and his prayer with God. You know, maybe it was Abimelech's integrity. Maybe it was Abimelech's witness, actually, and um, wisdom, which shamed and convicted Abraham. It should have been the other way around, but maybe that's the way it worked. It would have indeed have been a very embarrassing and humbling experience to be rebuked by a pagan king who was demonstrating more character and more wisdom in matters than he had demonstrated. Maybe, you know, having Sarah brought back into his arms and realizing what he had almost lost, maybe that brought sense back to Abraham so that he saw his wrong and had a change of heart and an attitude about it. And maybe he finally, after his rebuke by Abimelech and his wife's return, confessed his sin and his immature behavior to the Lord. But at any rate, whatever the situation might have been that, um, that got Abraham to get right with the Lord, we do know that he was restored, and we know this because the Lord did answer his prayer of intercession for Abimelech and his household. You know, however, if, if uh, Abraham had prayed before he moved to Gerar, for God's protection, then his prayer of verse 17 would not have been necessary. But like many of us, he didn't pray until he got into trouble, <laughs> did he? Uh, he had to pray for God to get him out of his trouble, troubles because he had not prayed originally for God to keep him from his troubles. Okay, thank you for your patience. Remember, we do not have Bible study next Tuesday.